Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Sam McAllister, the former Newsnight producer who made the Prince Andrew interview happen. And not just that interview, many more. And she details them in her phenomenal book, Scoops, which has just come out. And every chapter tells behind-the-scenes stories of a different type of interview. And there's a chapter on Julian Assange, on Amy Schumer, on Stephen Seagal, and it all builds to the Prince Andrew one. And it's a phenomenal story about how you hold people to account, how these interviews actually happen. Because obviously with the Prince Andrew one, the question everyone is left with, apart from why did he say the things he said, why didn't he apologise, is why did he do it? Why? How on earth was he convinced to do it? And the reason he was convinced to do it is because Sam McAllister convinced them to do it. And she's a phenomenal individual who is really capable of getting these people on camera and... As a result, we see these powerful people held to account. They create these phenomenal moments of television. They can change. I mean, it's, the, the effect was he had to step back from his royal duties. You know, this is the effect of that is really, really big. Um, so it's it's just such a thrilling read. Um, so and on top of that, I mean, everyone remembers the interview. You then read the account of it. There's so much more detail in there than you would imagine. That absolutely blows your mind. And we talk about it. And Sam, again, shares more stuff today that I, that I wasn't aware of. I'm not going to ruin any of that because it is genuinely mind-blowing, um, particularly the moments once they stop filming and they're in there at Buckingham Palace, Emily Maitlis, Sam and some of the others, and the tension that most people would presume is in that room and, and the reaction to it, well, I'm not going to ruin any of it. You will be very, I mean, it's just incredible. Um, so um, just before we come to this phenomenal interview with Sam, um, the next live show of the political party is on Monday, the 25th of July with former Home Secretary Alan Johnson. Um, it'll be fascinating to get his take on uh, the Tory leadership contest. I'm loving the TV debates. And um, of course, do go back and listen. Uh, the Sunday Times very um, kindly uh, did a write-up of this, but obviously some of the... Um, candidates have been on the show. I mean, Tom Tugan has been on about 15 times, been on two or three times, Tom Tugan hat. But Penny Morden, Tom Tugan hat, obviously Suella Brevin's out, Breverman's out of the race now, as is Jeremy Hunt, but they've all been on the show fairly recently. So uh, if you want to get to know those people a bit more, if you want a bit more detail on what they're like, if you're interested in um, some of the people who could potentially be prime minister, then um, do delve through the um, the uh, the back catalogue and, and listen to those. Um, in Edinburgh, I'm doing three shows um, of the political party. I'm doing my stand-up show, Clown to the Left and Me, Jokes to the Right. Uh, and then three interviews in Edinburgh on the 7th of August with former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, 
on the 15th of August with current Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwal and on the 22nd of August with Joanna Cherry QC, one of the SNP's most outspoken politicians. And all three of those obviously will be superb, as will the stand-up show be, and you can get tickets to all those in the blurb. What I've also put in the blurb is a link to Sam's book, um, I can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, if you if you like watching the news and you like insider accounts, I mean, it's basically perfect for this podcast, really. If you like insider accounts of these big moments in, in history, then you will love it. And it is, I mean, I just devoured it in two days. I couldn't stop reading it. It was like a, it was like a form of addiction, that book. It's brilliant. So I'll put the link to that as well. Um, so without further ado, to talk about some of these moments and the phenomenal Moments in the, and this is going to be turned into a film as well. So you get to enjoy this in so many different formats, podcast, print, the silver screen. Um, I began by telling Sam just how much I loved it, that it was the most entertaining, fun, one of the most brilliant books I've read in years. Sam, this is one of the most entertaining, engrossing, just fun books that I've read in years. Wow, and I haven't even paid you to say that, Matt. I <laughs> know, oh, it's just great. Obviously, the whole thing builds up to the Prince Andrew interview, and that's the one that I guess everyone wants to talk to you about. But there are other... The, the, the other chapter that I really loved was the one about Julian Assange, because I think you confirmed what I imagined he was actually like. Well, there's two things about that chapter, Matt. I can give you exclusively. My editor will hate me. My editor wasn't very keen on that chapter. And I said, that is the chapter journalists will love the most because it gives us, doesn't it, an inside of that embassy, which most people have never seen. And it's when we go wrong, we fail. So the chapter is really about when the interviewee wins and the interviewer loses. And that's why I wanted to include it. I mean, you're very honest about the people that you've um, booked and some of the people that you've worked with as well. And it's a really honest book and it's sort of unusually candid, I guess. We're not used to reading inside accounts that really do tell everything. With Assange, I mean, maybe I'm bringing my own politics to this. He's always felt to me like a pretty unlikable guy. And and the way he even shakes your hand, I mean, it makes him sound like a creep. It, It sounds like he really freaked you out being in his company. Well, the thing is, because I'm a former criminal defence barrister, I'm used to being in cells with alleged, uh, brackets, triple murderers, you know, paedophiles, that kind of situation. And you try to bring a completely clean slate to journalism and to your interviewees. But it's the one time I have to say that perhaps it was a combination of the airlessness, the intensity. He obviously wasn't doing very well, but that handshake where he runs his finger a little too long along the middle of my hand, leaving a trail, is with me still, Matt. It's 10 years later, and I can still feel it. And I'm sorry if that sounds prejudiced and unfair to him. It's really, really not fair in one sense, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? Those first moments, a handshake, an interaction, are they polite? Are they decent? Are they friendly? Are they kind? That's what really stays with you as a producer. So it's a very different experience to the presenter who comes in to do a different role. Yeah, and I guess for all of us, when you're viewing public figures of any sort through the lens of the media, you're you're trying to understand what their character is. And and we don't get to see them face to face all the time like you do. So the fact that you can share that personal experience. I, I mean, I think people on the whole consume these people based on whether they agree with them or not a lot of the time, rather than what are they actually like as people. And what's great about this book is, I mean, it, it's, it seems very fair. You know, the, the whole tone of the book is actually, it's not about whether you agree with these people or not. There are people that you can interact with in a very friendly way, whether, you know, and you never necessarily give away whether you like them or not. But I, with, with Assange, I just, 
it confirmed, I think, what my get. I imagined he'd be like that. But it's the one time probably I let myself down because you're absolutely right. The book, I hope, is very fair because the joy of being impartial is that you learn very quickly to keep your opinions to yourself rightly. And with each guest, I like to give them a clean slate. It didn't matter what they were accused of. We had to give them the impression, which was true, that they were getting a fair hearing. Now, with Assange, in a sense, I let myself down. So I wanted to criticise myself because I did come with the prejudice that after that, handshake and after the way he interacted and how he behaved you know he was kind of imperious and understandably we're just some journo and he's Julian Assange but it does leave a personal impression with you and it'd be remiss of me not to admit it here and there you know we are people who bring judgments and that was a time where certainly I brought a judgment and I felt something different from how I usually do with interviewees. The whole book as well is is really a defence of producers and the people who work to make these right. interviews happen. And I think sometimes, as you say in the book, people don't always appreciate why these interviews are happening at the time that they happen or even with a particular broadcaster or show or whatever. I mean, you are responsible for so many amazing moments in television and not just from an entertainment point of view, although, of course, they are very entertaining things to watch. But in holding powerful people to account, you've played a crucial role and it's so, even as someone who, you know, I booked this podcast myself on the whole. I have a friend, Richard Garvin, who's a fantastic producer who helps um, with some of the guests. People don't realise how hard it is to get people to do an interview sometimes. And, totally. And so what, yeah. how have you, because one thing the book doesn't give away, I mean, obviously what comes across is you work very hard at it. You know how to talk to people. You're, you're clearly very convincing. But what is it about you, do you think, that... Why have you been able to get these people when other people haven't? I think it's three things. I think the first one is that I am not good at taking no for an answer. In a professional setting, to be very clear, I was brought up to not take no for an answer. My background, although I'm resolutely middle class now, but my background was working class stock. My parents left school at 14. We were market people. We sell. We close a deal. My dad was an entrepreneur. My mum was an entrepreneur. So we closed a deal, you know, and my dad would ask for a discount everywhere that we went. Uh, it didn't matter if it was Harrods. He'd still ask for a discount. So the first thing I think is the nature. The second thing I think is because I am a very honest person and I'm very direct and take me or leave me. I don't care if you're Prince Andrew. I don't care if you're Sir Philip Green or I don't care if you're someone working in a shop. I treat everyone the same, like it or lump it. And that I think really helps with negotiation because most people are fawning, sycophantic. They tell people what they want to hear. And that comes to my third reason, I think, is because my persistence, I stayed in touch with people, but they trusted me because I didn't give them rubbish. I would tell them the truth for better or worse. I lost a lot of interviews because I would keep that line on the side of, no, we will be asking you that question. No, we don't do conditions. Actually, we will ask about that. And I would lose a lot of content because of it. But this one time, this little miracle with Prince Andrew, that was the mix that I believe meant that we got that interview over everybody else. And did you ever think, was there a kind of, I mean, obviously your, your, your career is still ongoing. It's not finished. You know, you've, you've, you've had this. Uh, uh, <laughs> I hope not, Matt. <laughs> of course not, no. You've got to tell me. <laughs> Basically you had your, this is like your Oscar moment, isn't it? This is your number this. one album or, you know, you've won the World Cup, you know, whatever the analogy you want. I've got the tricky second album to come. Well, exactly. But that's, you know, what a great challenge to have. It, it, do you think it, that that has always sort of been guiding you in the background that you thought one day I'm going to pull off 
not that it would be specifically Prince Andrew, because there's no way you could have known that back then, but do you think there's always been that drive within you that you thought, the whole point of this actually is to get a really big moment? The thing is, and I know the line between, you know, self-confidence and being a bit of a pain is, is quite a fluid one, particularly for us as women, I have to be honest. And I had a lot of people in my career tell me basically to pipe down, not be so full of myself, you know, stay quiet, all that kind of jazz. And I am lucky that I had the background that I was told not to listen to that. And I did always feel you're absolutely right, Matt, that there was something in the ether. I didn't know what it was, but there was that slight difficulty for me in the space between what I knew I was capable of and what you can deliver realistically as a producer in a relentless news cycle. So this, this felt like my holy grail moment, that moment where I could deliver something profoundly important for the nation and for Virginia Roberts, obviously, crucially, and for the royal family and for news journalism. But you're right, it was something very, very important for me too. And why not be a presenter? Because some people who are in that world might say, well, if you, oh, they might think themselves, well, if I'm going to bag these interviews, I want to be the one asking the questions. Have you never been tempted to cross over the line and be, be on camera yourself? Well, I was in the past, I did work as a Radio 4 radio correspondent. And I have had a number of opportunities to do presentation. The truth is a very banal reason, um, two reasons. One, that I've seen what it's like living in the public eye. And, you know, being Jeremy Paxman or Emily Maitlis, they're very, very brilliant and talented. But there are things that go with that, particularly with Emily, as you will have seen with the stalking and with Jeremy, with his inability to do anything without it being photographed that don't really appeal to me. And then the other reason is a personal one. I uh, was bringing up a kid on my own. It's a common tale for women that things change when you go back to work. I worked part-time and my priority was to be, to be frank, looking after my boy and my job came second. So I did this career part-time whilst bringing up a child on my own. I'm really proud of that, but it does mean that presentation until this stage, she's now 15 and I can do this kind of thing. That's why I took the risk of leaving, writing the book, doing this. It means I can do that now if opportunities arise, but it wasn't something practically I could do then. So I declined offers to do that kind of thing. And you're one of many people, including Emily Maitlis and John Sopel and various others that are leaving the BBC. I mean, it seems to have a real problem retaining top level talent on and off camera. Why is that? I think that there is a commonality. In the producer situation, obviously, as I say, frankly, in the book, I never earned more than 10% of any of the presenters I worked with. So it's a different situation. In the producer situation, and I wrote this book for producers everywhere, as you know, I'm passionate about the work that producers do. There is really a kind of a mentality of you're lucky to have this job. Now, it's an amazing place to work. I was hugely grateful to work there. It opened so many doors for me and I had magical times. But people who work hard and do good work should not be told, basically, you're lucky to have it. You know, you can't have a pay rise because we've got this happening and that happening. If you leave here, your career will be over, someone said to me. You'll never work again, somebody said to a friend of mine. So the idea that somehow we should basically be grateful, which we are in one sense, but that that stops us from being able to take on other opportunities, I think is the biggest reason. For me personally, as you may have read in the book, if you've got to that bit, unfortunately, I wanted to do things that the BBC couldn't accommodate. And they were often things that presenters could do. So that space between the producer class 
and the presenter class was writ large in my experience. And in the politest possible way, I didn't want to have any of it. As you know, I don't take no for an answer. So I had to choose. So I chose to leave to write the book. If you're a presenter, there's so much money out there, of course, if you choose to leave and more freedom to not be impartial. So I think it's a different set of reasons for someone like John or Emily than it would be for me. But it, the effect is still that top level talent is leaving the BBC at a time when its future is politically <laughs> delicate. And it you know, is an organisation because it relies on because of its funding model, it relies on the public actually having a level of confidence and love for it. 100%. Right at the time when this is probably being discussed more than ever and you've got a government that would love to clip the wings of the BBC, some of the, some of the talent that is making these amazing moments is leaving. I mean, it feels like this is a, a dangerous time for the corporation without being too sensational about it. Yeah, I, th I think it feels really sad. I mean, part of the responsibility, rightly, when you are paid for by the licence fee, is that people feel you are directly accountable to them. Now, when you're on half a million, that's probably a pain in the bum. But when you're on a lot, 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 lot less, you know, you, you do get quite a lot of vitriol in your personal life that can be hard to deal with. I think you're right that there is a balance between what the government perceives of the BBC, and obviously they're not number one fan. Some of that has been created, I think, by the dynamic between the BBC and the government, in which basically we do something you referred to earlier. We choose what we like and what we think based on whether we think simplistically it's binary, people are goodies or baddies. Now, the BBC's cast itself as the goody, but that's not very helpful in negotiation. It's one of my rules. You're not the goody and you don't go in to win. You have to listen. So I think they've created this unfortunate situation in which every time the government does something or says something which we may or may not agree with instead of engaging with what may be fair criticism sometimes or something constructive you get all these bbc people all over twitter posting pictures of how much value you get you know what it's about it completely misses the point and at the core of this for me is i feel there's been a schism in the relationship with the bbc and the government that's one thing but the bbc in the country who do we actually represent? We represent the viewer out there, whatever their political makeup, whatever their background, their class, their views, and we're meant to give them information to digest and come to their own conclusions. And somewhere I feel that relationship's gone a bit wrong. So I think it's a double peril from the BBC's conversations with the government, but also from the BBC's conversation with the nation. And is, is that as a result of where the BBC is located, where it recruits its people from? Is there, is there a danger that it is, there's some truth in the stereotype that it's effectively a sort of London-based, metropolitan, privately educated group of people that actually are slightly out of touch in various ways with other parts of the country? Well, look, you can tell from the book that I like to cast myself as the kind of chirpy outsider, right? You know, obviously I wrote my own book, I'm the heroine in my own book, but the truth is, of course, much more complicated. I would say that I often found myself being the only person giving what we would call politely the counterintuitive view, because there is a kind of groupthink in any organisation. It's not just the BBC, where it's easier to agree with people around you and whatever the prevailing view is, it's easier to be part of that. Now, I never had any problem. I don't do orcs, as they say. I never had a problem with disagreeing, but it does take a toll. So I think that there is a prevalence of certain ways of thinking, and it becomes onerous on those of us who have slightly different backgrounds. I mean, as I said, 
by the end of things, I was I was very, very resolutely middle class. But, you know, I came from a different background, a world in which we speak truth to power. We don't take any rubbish. We don't suck up to people. We don't care who you are. We just care whether or not you're a pain in the bum. So I had a different way of doing things that I think is unusual to the point that people would remark upon it constantly. Now, there's a problem. Somebody who says things like, we need to think about the opposing view. Not everybody thinks why. How about what this person might think? How about that? And then it becomes conflated with somehow you're some kind of agitator or some kind of difficult person. That's the problem. It used to be a place where you could have robust conversations and they weren't personal, but now I don't feel that it was. And I found it hard to be that agitating voice. I'd become someone who was annoying rather than someone who was helpful. And obviously there are different parts of the BBC and the, the way the BBC reports on itself is something that is at times... Oh, excruciating. I mean, from a viewer's point of view, comic at times. And it's W1A, just... like times 100, right? Actually, that's beyond parody. That is mild in comparison to some of the meetings I've been to, Matt, I tell you that. <laughs> but you mention it in the book where when Jeremy Paxman uh, reads the listings of BBC4 to Mark Thompson and, uh, you know, the effect in the green room afterwards. I mean, that must have been very odd that you're all effectively grilling your boss live on TV. Does that ever feel perilous? Do you think, oh, God, we're going to get closed down or fired? It's the weirdest thing ever. The weirdest thing you would find is you'd ring the BBC press office to ask for someone who works in your organisation on a news story and they'd be doing Channel 4. You'd get declined. So we'd get declined more than anybody else. The number of times I would have to ring up and say, guys, come on, this is the biggest story in the country. You have to do Newsnight. And they'd be like, oh, sorry, Sam, we've already agreed to do Channel 4, Sky, you name it, everything else. I think it does feel perilous to a lot of people. And again, I think that that lack of interest in um, being basically bowing down to power really helps me because I never thought about that for one second. I didn't care. In fact, it probably gave me the opposite feeling, you know, that score a couple of extra points because there's an extra obligation because the public are concerned that you're going to be biased or difficult. I think with Newsnight, we were a bit of a satellite and probably the Today programme will be the same because we are a group of people who like to speak truth to power. Of course, that's why we're working there. And we probably gave a harder time to people on our watch than anybody else out there. But it is awkward. It's your director general. It's your boss. You've just asked him questions about Skippy the kangaroo live on global television. He's clearly not best pleased. And he's just had to break off dinner at the Wolseley, I understood on that day. I myself had not eaten and actually hadn't been to the bathroom. I've been on a 12 hour shift. So you can imagine that creates a very different relationship with management because you usually only see them when either they're on screen having done something wrong or when we're in trouble. That's the only time we used to see the big bosses. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, you referred to it earlier, obviously, your priority, raising your son, being a single mum, not coming from a, a wealthy background, that often can make people be, uh, keep people, people get their heads down because they think, well, look, I, I, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get fired. I need to pay the bills. I need to put food on the table. Yet you've got the totally opposite view, which is it's far better to have the integrity and to, and to, and to, um, ask difficult questions and to push it, regardless of the effect on your own career. I mean, that, that takes an amount of courage when you don't have that financial safety net that other people have. Well, by the time I made it to university, my mum and dad had made a bit of dosh and uh, they became tax exiles. So don't get me wrong, things were okay, but I have always grafted for myself and not ever had parental income to fall back on. I think in truth, 
that's not necessarily the case for me. In the book, I talk about circumstances where I was concerned I was going to lose my job. Uh, when my father was dying, there are a couple of occasions where it felt like I might be asked to leave. And I lived with, as many BBC employees do, a sort of theoretical sort of Damocles over your head, because every 12 months there is a round of cuts. And again, as I say, obviously the BBC does need to be smaller. It's not me saying, you know, we should all have jobs until the day we die. But it has a really onerous effect on you and you don't feel stable in the job. So I would say I probably spent about two years of my career feeling that the job was stable. And the rest of the time, I just enjoyed the ride and made the most of it because every day tomorrow could have been my last And so instead of being made small by that, I just went the other way and went gung-ho. Because if it could be your last day working there, you might as well try and close a great deal today and enjoy it. And I really tried to enjoy my time there as much as possible, despite impending sacking at any juncture. And the the big deal that you seal. And I'm sure there will be big deals in the future. There may even be bigger ones. But this is so far the biggest is the Prince Andrew one. And and your account of it is phenomenal. It's all the detail you want to know about, which I think is... And, and that's true of all the chapters in the book is, it's not just, oh, we went and had a meeting and, you know, the, the basics. It's about where you're even looking at the time. You know, I can really picture that room. You, you bring it to life so vividly. It's wonderful. It's so Thank you, Matt. Very kind. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One of the things that to this day, and I'm sure everyone is saying this to you, is he actually thinks it's gone well afterwards. And Isn't that astonishing? I just can't believe, you know, it, and what's great about that is you sort of hold that back. It, it's told like a film. It's so well written that... When it ends, you just think, you know, I'm reading it, just loving it, thinking, God, what are they going to say to each other afterwards? You know, you can feel the claustrophobic tension on the page. And they, it's, 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 you know, it's, the lady works for his oh, wasn't that great? You're like, what? And then he really, he thinks it's gone great. You think, I mean, how? That must have just been surreal. It, it was really surreal. I mean, I still can't believe it happened. And as you said, it has like a filmic quality to it. And you may have heard we've announced that my, I'm the luckiest woman alive. My book's been optioned into a film. But sitting there, Matt, my, my curse of having to be honest really hit because I've sat there looking at the floor basically for 45 minutes. I'm going to get personal with you now. And I forgive, I forgive me, please. But when I get nervous, I do two things. Ironically, the first is sweat. And I'm a... <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry. <laughs> That's true for most people, isn't it? I know. But unironically, the second one is this kind of gurgle thing that I get, like a <clears throat> in my throat. So I'm trying to control all of that, not cough. You know, this is the moment of the decade in my career. We get to the end of that cataclysmically terrible interview where you know that he is on his knees. And I have this lovely woman next to me who um, has introduced herself as his equerry. She was an absolute delight to me, offered me a martini when I arrived. I mean, what more could you ask for? I did decline before you ask, because I was delirious. And I don't know what to say, because I only do sincere. It's my curse. So I formulate my words very carefully, and I say, slightly high pitch, so how do you think it went? Look at the floor, make no eye contact. And she replies with full body language, wasn't he wonderful? And I reply, Matt, in all sincerity, yes. Yes, he was. <laughs> oh, yes, he was. And then I raise my eyes. And that's where you see the schism in the room between the journalists. And remember, I'm an ex-criminal defence barrister, so I knew he'd really, really caused himself some difficulty with some of those answers. Even though I'd heard them a few days before at the face-to-face -face negotiation, I didn't believe he'd actually say it on camera. That never happens. And the schism in the room is the journalists all look frightened, and he looks delighted. And those photos of Emily and he walking in the corridors, get this, this is extraordinary. They were taken after that interview happened. Now I want you to do me a favor. You're gonna go back and look at some of those pictures in the public domain. Look at Emily's face. Emily's face is the face of a woman who knows we need to get out of there and get this back to the BBC and pray that it doesn't get spiked. His face is the face of a man who thinks he's done a good interview. And I think that's the most extraordinary thing. He thought he had done very well. What, one of the things that comes across um, in that initial meeting that you have with him, where Prin Princess Beatrice comes in, that actually he, he, he seems good company. Seems like a, quite an easy person to deal with. Well, that's the thing. I'm In no way am I an apologist or a defender of Prince Andrew and, and the terrible things that he's accused of. Let me say that straight away. But on the human level, he and I got on like a house on fire. I mean, that was just a fact. That is my job to get on with people, of course, but I do it from a pace of authenticity and integrity. And I just love people. I love connecting with them. I'd researched him and I thought we were going to get on well. And we got on really well. He was very easy to deal with. He was, despite media reports to the contrary, not at all rude to us. He listened. That was the thing I found most interesting. It's a bit like speaking to you in a sense. I can tell you're really listening to what I say. And it's very rare in the negotiation, first of all, to do it face to face with the actual interviewee. Usually I was doing negotiations with the second in command, not the first in command. And the second thing that's so unusual is that he wasn't on a monologue. He was asking questions. He listened to my responses. He was fascinated that I'd been a barrister. He asked me all kinds of legal questions and personal questions. We laughed in particular when I boldly told him that my mum used to work for Robert Maxwell briefly. I mean, other people would not mention that, right? But I, I, I mentioned it. It was a point of bonding. Yeah, but we got on really well. And I think that that lack of deference, which obviously most people show, is my hallmark. And he was very congenial, very easy to deal with. And extremely polite and nice to me and of course to Emily who was sitting right next to me and to Stuart the deputy editor who was there on that last negotiation also which was face to face he was extremely pleasant and nice to us the whole way through. And did you think during those negotiations then well if he's like this on camera he might the country might like him? I always think that it's interesting because 
everybody thinks that you're looking to kind of bring somebody down. And of course, the presenter's job is different. You're looking to create that moment of jeopardy, accountability. But for me, because I would spend months and months with these people, my mind was always open on how it would go. It seems mad now, Matt, but at the time I felt it was 50-50. I felt if he formulated sensible responses and he said for the first time in a sincere way that he was hugely sorry, he had terrible lapses of judgment, which is what I assumed he would say, that there was a possibility, quite a strong one, that that could be helpful to him in his predicament. What was fascinating for me, because we did the final negotiation on the Monday, they said yes on the Tuesday, That interview happened on the Thursday. You saw it on a Saturday. Sorry if I'm sounding like a Craig David song now. And on the Monday in that negotiation, which usually would be a briefing call where somebody says loads of amazing stuff and then they get on air and your presenter's like, you said they said X and then they don't say it. I never believed on the Monday hearing him say Pizza Express Woking because that's when we heard it. Hearing him say no sweat. Hearing him discuss the closeness of his friendship with Epstein. By the time we got on camera, I never for one second thought he would still say all of that on air. So why do you think he did? I think he genuinely believed what he was saying. One of the things that's interesting as a criminal defence barrister is you're often dealing with clients who are accused of terrible things. And we discussed that in the negotiation. He was very engaged with my legal background. When we got back to the office, Emily said, Sam did legal, uh, which, was, which was true. I told him I hadn't practised for a very long time, but it obviously gives you a certain kind of mentality. And I think for him, the thing was that he was just in a situation that was invidious. It was impossible. And in his head, these are things that, if I may be so bold, I suspect he's either been told to say at some stage or he's believed happened or he thinks are true. Whether they're actually true is very hard to tell with clients because obviously you're dealing with people where we have different memories, we remember different things, we have different experiences. So did he sweat or not? factually possible to prove or disprove and had he gone into litigation that would have been number one right and was he at pizza express on woking on that day at a children's party factually possible to prove or disprove and they both would have been in the court not of public opinion which is where he was on that day but in a, a actual court they would have been the things on which he fell but he clearly sincerely believed them when he said them because You'd have to be mad as a member of the royal family to go on air and tell what everybody assumes were lies, but I just don't believe he thinks they're lies or that they were lies to him. That was my impression. I guess as well, it's the lack of judgment to not even do the basics around expressing any sort of sympathy for the victims. Correct. Or, the, you know, it, it's almost like he's never watched the news before. You think, how can you... And I know the monarchy are a very different form of public life. I, I know that it's a different thing, but... When you're so used to watching politicians deal with similar questions. That's right. There's a basic form of words that should actually quite easily come to mind that are on films, that are on telly every day. I mean, it gives the impression that these people are just completely removed from real life in in, in any regard. And why the people he employs don't say, actually, I think you should at least express that lack of human, that lack of empathy I just found shocking. I think what's interesting about it, and now that I've left the BBC, one of the things I do is I advise corporates on how to deal with situations like this or CEOs on how to do interviews of this kind, obviously not to this extreme. But the thing about it is, I think, really, is that 
I would envisage that they did the same as us. They would have done a couple of days of prep. In our situation, that was with Esme Ren, our editor, who'd not been at any of the negotiations, who never came to Buckingham Palace, who was our cool, calm head back in the office, objective, brilliant, spent years in the industry, the editor. Meanwhile, Andrew would have done his prep with his very, very competent and gifted um, chief of staff, Amanda Thursk. I say that because I dealt with her and she has been magnanimous to the point of, I mean, it's disbelief how she's still in touch with me and kind and generous to me despite everything that happened. And it's a very different experience. One is an editor who, who is a professional and one is somebody who works for you in a position of submission, uh, who basically is your number two, whose job is to basically tell you how amazing you are. And that's the flaw because in that interview, no doubt Amanda, who was extremely adept, would have said to him, these are the three things you need to do, sir. You need to say, I am sorry. It is terrible what happened to these young women. And I hugely regret my terribly bad idea of being friends with Jeffrey Epstein. I'm sorry to the nation. I hope you will forgive me. That's all he had to do, Matt. And he didn't hit any of them. And my feeling was that when the camera started, whatever preparation Amanda would have done, and I'm sure she did, whatever preparation they'd agreed, whatever answers they'd rehearsed, which I'm sure they would have, it didn't matter. The second that camera came on, it was like he was on a, a jape, you know, and he just said anything he wanted and there was nothing that anybody could do. It's so interesting you say that because I think for so many of us watching it, it was like he was someone who, who he was behaving like someone who never gets any pushback that no one ever says that's not true you know you just think this is the bit where even i thought his facial expressions were childish i don't know but i didn't know at times he looked like he was pretending he didn't know stuff and then it was stuff that he did know and that whole thing about it wasn't a party it was a shooting weekend you're like oh god i thought that was the worst answer and then i was like that wasn't even the start sam what are you talking about I call it the delusion of power, Matt, and that's one of the things that I think is really dangerous for people in positions of power because of the sycophancy that you have around you, because of what you create in terms of being told you're amazing. Now, take this to the nth degree. Here is a man who for almost 60 years has been, as we all understand, the Queen's favourite son. He's been told he's amazing. He's never lost a job. He's never had a terrible appraisal. He's probably never even been dumped. He's never had to worry about his fuel bill. The cost of living crisis is not a problem. He has not been told that he's stupid, useless, rubbish. All the things that we're used to, he has never in almost 60 years had ever even once. And the delusion, I would call it, that that creates is unfortunate and this was the most extreme example of how that delusion can trip you up beyond belief. Because to him, he felt, I think, that he was just going to address the nation and we go, oh, OK, then. Thanks very much. You know, you're Prince Andrew. That's all sorted then. And that space between reality and his perception of it is obviously created by that extraordinarily privileged machine that he'd lived in for almost 60 years. And, and there's a revelation in the book that, that actually one of the Queen's staff does briefly pop in. Yes. And they don't stay for the interview, which seems like a, a, again, I mean, are they in a similar position to him in that they thought it was all going to be fine? I found that really astonishing. Now, I can't know what was going on in that individual's life that day. Perhaps they had, you know, a very crucial audience with the Queen. Perhaps they had to do other things. But I was introduced to the head of communications. At the time, I thought he was a lawyer when he walked into the room because we never met 
a lawyer. And I found that absolutely shocking. I never saw a lawyer the whole time I was there. I was waiting for the lawyer to arrive and close this show down. And when he arrived, he was the head of the communications for the Queen. He was extremely polite. He interacted. He surveyed the room. And then he left. Now, before the interviews happened, okay, maybe he had stuff to do. I have to say, though, and I don't want to be judgmental, and perhaps he had really, really, really important stuff to do, but it must have been really important to walk away from watching a member of the royal family be questioned by Emily Maitlis, the foremost interrogator in the country at that point, about allegations of sexual impropriety and his relationship with a paedophile. I have to say it's a pretty high bar for what else he had to do. So no disrespect to him, uh, but I think that was a very bad call. It's hard then to not presume that the Queen thought Andrew was going to be fine. I think she has a blind spot for him from what I gather. And as I said, one of the reasons I think I got this interview is that I have no connections in that world. We'd never done a royal interview. And I've done some some interviews over this period of time with royal correspondents. And the thing they all say to me is, we can't believe you did this. We can't believe you did that. And of course, they have to do a merry dance, understandably, in terms of dealing with the palace to not pee them off. I don't care about merry dances and I don't care about peeing people off. So I think that in that situation, there was a real difference in the way that we were doing things and the conversations that we were having. And I think there was a real point of difference for him in the way that he was conducting his royal life, because I feel that there is a blind spot from the Queen towards him. Now, when the Queen very, very sadly is no longer here, I think it will be a very, very different story for Andrew in the more realistic glare of his older brother. You mentioned Amanda Thirsk earlier, and you're you're very kind about her in the book. I mean, that side of it must be very difficult to manage because you've spent years trying to sort this interview out. You've done it with her help, and then the interview that you have so skillfully arranged really has set a bomb off in in her life. And it's because of Prince Andrew's behaviour and the way that he conducted himself in that interview. But it, that must be very hard to, to, in a way, not, I don't know if you feel guilt, but you know, you, you no, it is hard. for her. It must feel, that must feel, that must be very difficult to deal with that side of it. it. It was very difficult to deal with. I mean, I appreciate that lots of people will feel no sympathy or empathy for Amanda because they will think, oh, she did a rubbish job. But she was in a sense in the same position as me, literally, because she was second in command. She was the power behind the throne. And figuratively, because we had a lot of similarities. We were both women, you know, in our forties and fifties, we were bringing up children alone. Uh, Her reason because her husband sadly had passed away. She was formidably intelligent. She did not suffer fools gladly. She dealt with me with grace, integrity, honesty, decency, never caused me any difficulty. And the friendship, I will be honest, that we formed over those many months where it was just the two of us negotiating face-to-face and on the phone and by email does leave a place in, in your human heart. And so the producer obviously spends a lot of time with somebody and the presenter walks in, it's not a criticism, that's the job, walks in and then leaves. But for me, and I feel a bit emotional talking about it now, that, that was very difficult for me because I did feel guilt. Perhaps that's not rational. Uh, and it was down to his answers, nothing to do with her. But we all know when something goes wrong, that it's the second in command that's going to get the chop. And the second this happened, the first thing I thought after, great, he's been held accountable, was, oh, my God, Amanda. And what's she doing now? I, um, she's very, very private. So she's doing, she's doing well. And that's what matters to me. We still meet 
can you believe that? This woman is so magnanimous. She's so classy. Class in the glass, as my auntie Rita would have said. She's so classy that she remains in touch with me and has never cast any aspersions upon me and does nothing but congratulate me on my successes and wishes me well. And that really is a credit to the kind of human she is, but it also proves that I'm right about how I gauged her. She was a woman caught in a very difficult situation, trying to mitigate her boss. He was a bomb waiting to go off and she was trying to reduce the shrapnel. But unfortunately there was nothing that anybody could do. The second he was on that camera, it was all over whoever you were. I think it does make sense that she's kept in touch. I think sometimes when you have these big moments, you're such a big part of her story. You've, you've, you know, this is the biggest thing that will have happened in both your careers so far. And you are forever in that bracket together, aren't you? For, for better or for worse. So in a way, you're, in a way you're almost defined by each other. I totally agree. But for me, obviously, the outcome was one that has been an extraordinary opportunity. I'm very lucky to have been able to write this book, to be speaking to you. Obviously, the film that's happening, other opportunities that are coming my way. Um, it may sound a bit crass, but that's what's happened to me. With her, Matt, I'm like some horrible ex or something. You know, I'm somebody who, if I were her, I would want to avoid like the plague. Because even though I know we had that trust and integrity, that, that match between us that made this interview happen... She's been kind enough to make that very clear. Nonetheless, if I were her, I'd really just want to opt out from any of us and never see any of us again, not from cruelty, but just from necessity. So I do think it does speak to her character in quite a profound way that she stays in touch and wishes me well. That's extremely unusual. And I've never had that before with anybody else I've dealt with, particularly in these extraordinary circumstances. And I guess in a way, if you're her and you've, tried to prep this guy for this interview and he's not taking your advice and it's backfired. In a way, that's a job that if you can leave, in, in that regard, I guess it's not the end of the world because you think, well, if he's not going to take my advice and you see the effect of that, maybe I should work elsewhere. I think it was probably time for her to say goodbye to that role. I mean, I think we both understood that together as well because I was, you know, getting towards the end of my career at the BBC um, and I think we were in a similar position in a similar place in our careers and in our lives. And so the sliding doors moments between the two of us were basically, there was a lot of synchronicity and that I absolutely agree with you. This was probably, you can't really deny anymore that this is not the job for you after that interview. There is one bit in your account and, and I, I wasn't sure what it meant and, and, and maybe you don't either, but there's one moment during the interview where someone gets there, someone pulls someone's leg physically just tugs at their trousers. And I can't remember, I think it's a member of the Royal Staff. It's Amanda. Yes. Why'd she do that? And what, what do you think, what was going on there? I really don't know. So Stuart was, who's now the editor at Newsnight, who's, you know, brilliant. He was the exec on this. So we were all having these very different roles and living these very strange lives. We hadn't told our friends and family. And Stuart was standing there. So he was, you know, sort of like the man in the suit in the moment, sort of concentrating, no doubt, jelly inside, but keeping it all together. And Amanda, and I think it shows the level of comfort she had and the level of confidence. She, meanwhile, was sitting on the floor during the interview with her legs underneath her and writing notes in a book. Now, I've no idea why, and Stuart wouldn't know either, I'm sure, because we didn't talk during the interview, but there was a point, and I'm behind Prince Andrew, so remember, I don't even see his face. I only see it when you see it. I just see the back of him. But there's a point in which she leant over and tugged on Stuart's 
on Stuart's trouser leg, clearly trying to get his attention about something. I don't remember at which point it was. It could have been any point and it would have been something cataclysmic, right? But there was clearly, that was the level of an intervention. If it had been me, Matt, I come from a different background. I don't keep it classy. I take selfies in the Queen's waiting room, as you know, from reading the book. You know, I do not keep it classy. I probably would have like pretended to feign, possibly fake my own death, you know, to get out of that situation. But her version was that tug on that trouser. And I just noticed it because it was so unlike her. And I've no idea what the interaction was. Perhaps I'll never know. It's a great moment of such subtle, but profound drama that. I'm trying to, I guess she's just trying to sort of intervene somehow. <laughs> just in the smallest well, kind of that's moment. the thing. What do you do once it started? Something, you know, just... Well, as you say, it is very filmic. And I mean, you know, obviously it literally will be a film now. And that's the thing, sitting in there, it was such a surreal experience. And I, and I still can't really believe it happened. It just is beyond belief to me that that was all said, it was done on camera and that that happened. And everything that came afterwards, when he stepped back from our public life, I was home with my boy. He was on the other sofa. Argos sofas we've had for about 20 years. So I really do need to clean them. I shouldn't have said that. That's too much information. But I'm lying on the sofa and I find out on my sofa with some cat sitting on me, you know, that he has just stepped back from public life. It's on Channel 4 News. I was watching that night. And that's how I found out. And then my phone went mental. And in that moment, Matt, I have to be honest, I felt something I've never felt in my life before other than when I fly, which I detest. I felt fear. I felt fear. And I'd never felt that before. You can tell I'm pretty fearless because it was something extraordinary. It was unprecedented. A correct use of the word just this one time. He stepped back from his role as a member of the royal family because of work that I had done, that Emily had done, that Esme had done, that Stuart had done, the Newsnight team had done. But in that moment, I just I, I didn't really know what was waiting me. And, and that feeling of fear was something I'd never felt before. And it took a couple of days for it to go away. I think it's entirely understandable because you're being catapulted into a global news story. And you, you have no idea what the effect's going to be on you. You don't know whether it's going to be good or bad or, or whatever. And I just think it's like an evolutionary response. You get these surges of adrenaline that you, you're not used to, that you can't deal with. And... I think it's entirely rational to have felt that at that moment, especially as you're dealing with powerful people. Very powerful people. I mean, it's a credit to this country, you know, that here I am talking to you and everything is fine. I mean, if that was Putin's Russia, I certainly wouldn't be, right? But I mean, the day after the interview happened, I didn't even leave the house. And um, my son was with his dad. I was home. Uh, a neighbour had said there might be some paparazzi. It was probably like someone with a camera, but, you know, theoretically someone had been spotted. And I turned the lights off and day became night. I did not leave my room because I just felt really out of it. I didn't know. I had nothing that I had been through that prepared me for that experience. And my phone's going demented. And obviously people I've not heard from for years, suddenly my new best friend, a bit like with the announcement of this film. So you, everything is demented and you're just trying to keep calm. So I just closed my eyes in a dark room. And I, only th I think I only took two calls that day. One from my mum and one, weirdly, from Sir Philip Green, but there we are. Um, but I just tried to keep my head down and stay sane because it did feel like a, a small moment of personal insanity. But it's uh, the book is phenomenal. I cannot wait to see the film. So kind of you, Matt. Thank you. Well, it's just brilliant. It, you know, these... It is possible... That is arguably the greatest TV moment of all time. It's certainly the best moment of broadcast journalism for God knows how long, 
and it wouldn't have happened without you. And your your account of it is even more thrilling. I mean, you're you're responsible for such a phenomenal piece of accountability that I, I, you just you should be so proud of it all. It's wonderful. It's so cool that it's been turned into a film. So thank you for it all, and thank you for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Matt, and I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Take care. Cheers. Well, there you go, Sam McAllister. What a thrill. And I mean, there's so much more. You just, you could talk about just the Prince Andrew interview for hours and hours and hours and hours. And what her book's really good at is you do feel like you're in the room. She picks up on the sort of things that I think I would want to know about, about the things you notice on the carpet. And, you know, the, the visual element of it, I think is perfectly communicated in this book. And, and just, you can't believe that afterwards they think it's gone well. I just can't get my head around that. And then, and she says this in the book, obviously in the, in the day we get out of Buckingham Palace and they just presume that it's going to get spiked, that Buckingham Palace or the lawyers or whoever is going to say you can't show it. And that just doesn't happen. And I just presumed from the outside that there must have been an attempt at least to try and edit or control. And that just didn't happen. And that is in, in a story that is so astonishing. Um, one of the more astonishing elements that they genuinely thought that interview that the whole world can see is a total disaster was actually, it had done him good. And then the fact that, I mean, I remember the footage and the photos of uh, Prince Andrew and Emily Maitlis in one of those royal corridors. I can't believe that was filmed afterwards, not before. I mean, it's incredible how relaxed he is, but um, it will be, I can't wait to see the film. And isn't it thrilling to think about what Sam will do next and the other TV moments that she will help create that we will see that where powerful people get held to account uh, in that in that vital forum. Um, so what a treat to talk to her. Uh, and again, I've put a link to the book so that you can buy it. Um, and it is a great read. And of course, the uh, the um, live shows. And I, and I should have said at the start, when we come back after the summer, it starts again in September. Um Confirmed guests so far for the autumn winter run include Matt Hancock and Rachel Reeves. And as always, of course, uh, more names to be added as soon as possible. Um, so stay cool out there. Um, well, what better way to cool down than by reading Sam's book? Because it would, um, it will, um, you can sort of use it um, as like a sort of parasol uh, while reading it. So there you go. You see, it's, um, it's good for your health as well. And um, I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.